Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. Welcome back to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. Thanks for joining me. This week, my guest is John Stevens of R&T Calls and Jay Stevens Calls. I'm going to go in depth uh, reciting all of the accolades surrounding John Stevens uh, in the interview, but suffice it to say that he's a legend in the waterfowling community. He's one of, if not the most accomplished duck calling champion of the modern era, and I'd argue that he's probably one of the largest and most important proponents of keeping the history, the lineage, and kind of a reverence for the folk art surrounding duck hunting, meaning call creation, decoy carving, etc. It's a privilege to be able to talk to a guy like this, and you know, I kind of had to pinch myself a little bit to think that I've gotten to a point in my life where I have professional overlap with John and I'm able to call or text him and go on over to the call shop and watch him make a call and then sit down and ask him all the questions I could think of. So I am actually going to drive about an hour and a half back to my house because I forgot stakes for decoys and I'm going to hunt tomorrow. So that must be done. And I will leave you to listen to this interview with John Stevens of RT Calls. Thanks so much. All right, so I'm here at RT Calls, uh, Stuttgart, Arkansas, right by the big greenhead statue out there in the Max parking lot. Uh, I'm joined by, or rather, I'm joining John Stevens here in this kind of phenomenal place that he developed and built and john thanks for having me man yeah man i'm glad you came yeah so it's been a been a real fun couple of hours uh, i've been sitting here watching john make one of his custom john stevens branded duck calls uh this model is called the weirdo which i think is apt and uh yeah i'm i'm looking forward to having a really cool conversation john uh is a it's going to be kind of hard to say this in front of looking at somebody, but I mean, John is a, is a fixture and, you know, uh, to many people, a hero in the duck call making, duck calling, duck hunting community. Uh, he's been kind of on the scene as a known entity for, you said what, you did your first contest when you were 12 or so? Yeah. 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 So we're looking at closing in on four decades with that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of people are going to know already, but if you don't know, R&T Calls, Rich and Tone Calls, has been, when did Butch establish it? Uh, 1976. So 1976, uh, started by another very famous person in the duck calling community, uh, Butch Rickenbach. And uh, man, that's actually probably a, a cool place to start, just a little bit of background, how you got into this, this space. Uh, John is a three-time 
Main Street Calling Competition champion. That means he's won the World Duck Calling Championship three times. He's also won the Champion of Championships, uh, which is when the people that have won the championship all compete against each other, and he was a winner there as well, which means that that means you're retired, right? You can't blow in that. I am officially retired. You can't blow in that contest anymore. Uh, it's kind of like he's climbed Everest multiple times. There's no, there's no other mountains to climb, no other dragons to slay. Uh, but uh, you've managed to take a business that was already a known entity and established in the duck calling world, and you've made it something global. Uh, something I realized I was seeing on Instagram a lot is just when people are posting anything related to duck hunting, you see a lot, you just see hashtag R&T. Mm-hmm. So it's kind, of, it's kind of become something that's ubiquitous just with the, the sport of duck calling, the, the activity, the art of it all. But, yeah, if you would, man, just tell me. We were talking a little bit about it, but you're from here in Stuttgart. And uh, tell me how you kind of got started in hunting ducks and calling ducks. Well, you know, it's it's real easy when you're from Stuttgart, Arkansas, because, I mean, that's really all there is to do here. Or that's the, I guess, um, main pastime for people to do here is duck hunting. Everything's uh, centered around duck hunting, uh, especially during the fall. Uh, and I was lucky enough to... Um, grow up on a farm uh so my dad had land that we could hunt and i started hunting really early uh probably five or six years old i'd go with him you know and uh we w- we would make it fun you know it wasn't uh if we got cold we would leave and i think that was always one of the keys that kept me wanting to go as a, a child you know i never got miserable as far as the weather um, and at a really early age i was just intrigued with duck calls and it's been that way i mean ever since like on the third or fourth hunt, I can just remember, you know, asking my dad for his call and, you know, I'd blow on it. Of course, I was just blowing air, but um, I actually got a picture when I was probably, man, six or seven years old. And I had an old, I think it was an old or a Jensen, I can't remember which one, but I blew on it and blew on it. And it was him and another guy that was uh, in the blind and a duck came in and they shot it. Now, granted, it was a spoonbill, but, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure it wasn't coming into that call. Um, but I got a picture with it, and uh, man, ever since then, it's just been, you know, that's just one thing that's been like a fixture in my life, this calls. And from that early age... Um, Real quick, if I can interrupt, how did how did they react when that bird came in and they killed it? Uh, I mean, it was pretty obvious, I'm sure, that it was not me, <laughs> my calling, but they made me think that, yeah. you know. So it made me uh, feel successful anyway, and um, it made me even want to blow more and more and call more and more, you know. So they were kind of doing that as a you know, um, encouragement to Mm -hmm. me to keep me hunting. But, um, once I got that, had done that and I just, man, that's all I, I talked about was calls and ducks. And, um, so I think when I was probably trying to think of the age, it would have been like maybe first or second grade, uh, Stuttgart had youth clinics that they would have in the fall and chick majors held them every year. And then he kind of passed the torch to Butch. And, um, so Butch was, giving those lessons at the Stuttgart Youth Center. And that's kind of where I started as far as I just, you know, which every kid in Stuttgart just about. I mean, everybody took duck calling lessons. That was one thing that was kind of cool is if you were from Stuttgart in our generation, you knew how to blow a duck call, you know. Um, It's just everybody, you know, girls, boys, there was big classes full of I didn't realize that. It it was pretty pretty cool. Um, And so, I mean, I've got friends that uh, I graduated graduated with – like Scott Edmond, who used to be, uh, we were born the same day. He was a uh, 
news anchor on Channel 7. He wasn't a big hunter, but he could blow a duck call because he was from Stuttgart. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's just how it was. Um, and that was, and everybody was interested in doing that. So um, that's how I got started actually learning to call and do that. I went through the youth clinics, and, and uh, I entered the first contest, like, when I was 10 years old, probably, a junior world. I didn't do that well. But up until about 8 and 10, I blew my duck call all the time. And that's kind of how I got into collecting because I had relatives that were from Stuttgart and that had old duck calls. And um, they would give me one of their old duck calls. And once I, you know, to blow, I mean, not necessarily as a collectible. And uh, I can just remember even at that early age just trying to figure out what was the difference in this call versus the one I had. And, um, you know, I wanted to know more about this call. And so um, it was almost got to the point where it was kind of weird, you know, because I was that young and I was just really interested in it and, and knowing where they came from. And so, man, I just had relatives that started giving me calls. And, um, I, you know, I probably had 20 or 30 duck calls before I was nine years old. And some of them are, like, old, you know. Um, what? So I would just imagine, you know, with my limited knowledge, I would think that – so we're talking about, what, the 70s, 80s? Yes, it would have been the 80s, yeah, mid-80s. Yeah. So most of the calls they were giving me, you know, were anywhere from the 50s to the 70s, you know. Um, I mean, are you talking about, like, what, like, Falks and Olds and No, Netsons? most of the stuff was made around here, you know, okay. like if it was Chick Majors, um, Hambone from um, Lone Oak, um, Cecil Leakers, uh, man, just stuff like that, you know. I mean, and so that that just made me, I guess, have an appreciation for it, but also interested in it, you know. And, and once I kind of progressed through Butch's clinic – uh, I wanted to start calling in contests, so he would do things like after those three, um, his clinics, you had three divisions, a beginners, a semi-advanced, and advanced, and once you went through all three of those, it took, you did one a year, then he had a deal where if you wanted to compete in the contest, you went to a shop, and he would help you there, you know, and give you kind of like private lessons or mm-hmm. something, so um, I started doing that, and once I did that and went over to the shop for the first time and watched him turn a call on a lathe, I was I was done, you know. I mean, that's that's all I thought about was wanting to make duck calls, and um, it was that way. And man, <laughs> all the way through college, you know, I told my parents I wanted to make duck calls for a living. They were like, "Man, you're crazy. You need to get a college degree." You know, or if you want to do that, I mean, they would encourage me to do that, but they wanted to make sure I had a college degree first, you know. And um, so I did that, and uh, graduated with a landscape architecture degree, and went to Hilton Head, South Carolina. And the part I loved about landscape architecture was I liked the design aspect. I've always liked creating things, especially designing something and then seeing it get built. And I think that was kind of the same way with duck calls. You know, I'd like to sketch calls up and then actually build them. And uh, that whole process, the design process from coming up with the idea to seeing it built, I think has always been in me no matter what I've done. So when I went to Hilton Head and did that, I loved my job, but I got to the point to where you weren't doing as much design you were doing more trying to sell projects or doing this or that and that just was was not um my cup of tea and so um butch was real sick and uh was having heart attacks and was having to have a heart transplant so he was getting ready to um sell his business and he was going to sell it to um he had a couple people like lowman um hunter specialties some other companies that looked at it and I was sitting in his shop when he was talking about all this and he said well why don't you buy it I said I mean because I don't have any money it's a pretty good start you know and um so we we were able to work something out and it worked out you know it's worked out well I mean I was lucky to um I always wanted to start my own duck call um company but 
Butch kind of – he did not make duck calls under his name until Chick Majors was either done or passed away. And I kind of felt like that was the right thing to do, not do it until he was done making calls or whatever. So my easiest way to get my foot in the door making calls was take over Richard Tone because he was still a part of it. I could still make calls. And, yeah, it wasn't my calls yet, but – it was still – I still had an awesome opportunity to get in there and learn from one of the best call makers, learn, you know, the business and do all this. And it gave me, looking back now, I mean, that's – I'm going – I bought in 99. My math's not great. This is 21, so what is that, 20 – 22 years. 20, 22 years. So um, I'm on my third year of making Jay Stevens calls. So it's 19 or 20 years of experience, hands-on experience I got to get before I – you know, I made these calls and I made calls growing up, you know, in my garage and um, that, but not really being able to develop everything from the way I wanted it to look, you know, and the, um, not the marketing aspect, but just um, it gave me more time and I got to have, you know, you learn stuff from experiences and just like, you know, your culture shapes the way you design or look at things. And that 20 years really helped shape the way I looked at calls and, and the collecting side too. I mean, I've collected since a kid, but that longer span of learning from older call makers and the influences from other call makers and seeing the kind of stuff that I liked helped me do what I do now. And it's really, it was very intimidating at first because I was taking over at the time, one of the um, most prolific custom call companies, which in that day, custom calls were, there were some commercial custom call makers. They weren't, when I say commercial, CNC machined at that time. They were just starting to get that way. That industry, our industry was just starting to go towards CNC machines, but there were call makers that made a lot of custom calls and sold like the Max or Bass Pro. And at that time, uh, Rich and Tone was one of them and had won more world championships than any other company so to be able to take that over was um very um not just influential but special and a privilege but it was always also intimidating at the same time you know i mean you had to step in there and i mean anytime you try to take over a business that has been very successful or the person that ran it was very well known i always go back to the uh, comparison that everybody in their town knew of a restaurant or a hamburger joint or something that was awesome and everybody talked about how great it was but as soon as it switched ownership it automatically wasn't the same mm -hmm. you know whether it was or wasn't um, so there was always that aspect too but um, we just went into it and had to figure out you know how could we make custom calls still custom but make a living at it and we you know like I said there was people were going using starting to use CNC means CNC machines and farming that business out instead of having cnc machines in the actual shop um, so we decided to buy our own cnc machine and start um, doing it ourselves so we could still keep it under one roof and we've just tried in those 20 years to figure out how to grow the business but at the same time keep it somewhat custom with today's technology and um, once we kind of gotten that going in the right direction um, after I won the champion of champions in, uh, 2015, um, Butch had passed away then. And, um, it just seemed like the right time to kind of start making my own calls, you know, because all the things were lining up for me to do that. Um, and at the same time, I mean, it just was, um, I said it was something I've always wanted to do. And that's some people 
aren't really aware, I guess, of how my background was, but like telling you, you know, making calls by hand, that's what I'd go to Butch's shop. I'd turn calls in there. That's the thing that fascinated me the most about calls uh, from collecting calls to anything. I just liked making stuff by my, by hands. And uh, if you look at Rich and Tone, yes, we don't make those calls by hand, but there's a lot of hands-on, not just with the tuning, but with um, the design work and some of the things that go in it. So, um, the whole reason why I did this in the first place is because I actually like making the calls. I like turning the calls. Um, I've always been that way. Even when we had old duplicators in the early days of Rich and Tone, instead of CNC machines, I liked being the actual guy that was turning the calls. So it ended up, I got into it kind of in the reverse situation where I had to get into it in a production situation. But now since all that has kind of come full circle and I'm back able to do Jay Stevens along with Rich and Tone, but doing Jay Stevens, I get to do it for the same reasons that I got into this in the first place. And that was making calls by hand. So it's worked out good. And, um, it's been, man, the last few, few years or so has been some of my most enjoyable years here at Rich and Tone. How old, do you have any idea how old Butch was when you, first started taking lessons from him man i don't i mean i could do the math but i'm not very good <laughs> math um you think it was in his 30s his 40s probably 40s so starting from that point i mean you really developed like a close personal relationship with him mm -hmm. and maintained that all the way up through his passing what uh you know that's really kind of a wild thing too that uh you you really probably learned i mean you learned from a generation of folks that doesn't really exist anymore you know and uh you learned in a way that folks don't learn anymore you know like you were asking me about like cuz i'm kind of on this quest to start making some calls myself and you know i've been going down these rabbit holes but you know the first place i went to was you know the google machine or mm -hmm. go to youtube you know uh and and so really just, you know, I've only been in a few call shops and watched a few people make calls. Uh, I'm kind of, I kind of started at the top as far as that's concerned, but like all my kind of uh, preliminary information came in this very non-personal way. And yours was, you were building a relationship and building a skill set uh, at the same time. How How did that relationship end up? I mean, did you look at him as like... Uh, like a like a grandfather kind of figure or an uncle or something like that or well you know butch and he used to go on vacations with us you know we went to baseball games as when i was first started um and man like i told him you know i mean the day that he passed away if it wasn't for him i probably wouldn't be doing what i'm doing i mean i would always had an interest in in duck hunting and duck calls i feel like but if it was not for the time that I spent going to his shop um, or seeing him turn duck calls, who, where else would I have seen that? You know, I still am a person that believes you do what you do and it's in you somewhere, but I, he's the one that got it out. You know, he's the mm. one that, um, because I went over there and uh, spent time watching him turn calls that got my interest up. Um, I don't know that... I don't know how else I would have got turned on to making calls. I mean, I might have through um, call collections and, uh, oh, it's a candle. 
thought I left my branding iron on over there oh, for a minute. I was like, God, yeah. I've already burnt this shop down <laughs> once. We don't need to do it again. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that he was able to teach, you know. And like I said, there's you can't re- you can't replace that. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'll be the first person to say it wasn't always perfect after a, I had bought Rich and Tone. Um, because you got to think you've got a, a guy that's um, ran his own business his whole life. And now you've got somebody that he taught that's running the business, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, so that is. But, man, he, you know, you got to think about what he's done for for me as far as getting me in here. And um, and I mean, what he's done in Stuttgart as far as, you know, with said he's taught those lessons forever. That's another thing that who knows, you know, when I would have got introduced two duck calls if it wasn't for that so um man it's he's he's done a lot for the for the duck calling community and uh, i'm just lucky that i got to spend time in his shop and see the way he made calls um because a lot of people say he was you know one of the best ever at making them at hand um i don't know that because i didn't see many other ones he was the best i saw you know and like i said he he, he taught a lot of things and i think one of the the best things too I mean, you're saying I learned from that generation, but man, one thing is a call maker, and it goes this way at anything in life. If you're open to learning, you can learn something from everybody. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's crazy. Sure. It's crazy. Like, um, you know, when Josh and I work on stuff together, um, I I pick up things from him. I hope he picks up things from me. Besides bad habits, um, but there's. You know, it's it's amazing, and I think sometimes we kind of get in a a tunnel vision of, you know, we don't want to help other people with calls, or, um, you know, that you're gonna somebody might. It was a it was a. I think I told you this earlier. Back in our days, when I was a kid, call makers didn't get along that much. I mean, there were some that got along, but you know, they all were. I'd stick their chest out, you know, if the other one walked in the room and, you know, I made a better call than he makes a better call, you know, and, they were, and I think it was competition. Um, but that, to me, that's just an, that's an older way of thinking, which at that time, that, that was just the way things were. Um, and to this day, I, I'm sure there's some people that still view it that way, but um, the way I look at it, it's like each call maker is kind of like an artist of their own or an artisan of their own. And what, work they produce um their personality comes into it so you know if i make a duck call and you make a duck call you're going to get two totally different duck calls and that's what makes it cool that's what makes it fun buying calls or collecting calls you know um if everybody made the same looking call then yeah that would be one thing but seeing the personalities and the thoughts and the ideas that come out that make each person's call individual i think not only enriches the um pastime of call making but it's just going to build on generations of getting back to making calls by hand you know and we're at a we're at an age now where it's it's it is easier to make calls now because of youtube and google and um there's man like just the the tools and technology and stuff and it's easier like even when i first had rich and tone um it was so hard to find to get a jig made shoot now you can go to the internet and order one you know yeah, or send yeah. them a call get you couldn't even find people to make jigs back then so uh i mean you could but it wasn't as easy as it is now um so kind of answering your question in a long 
way. I think there's a lot of things to be learned from these older call makers, and I'm very, very lucky and fortunate to have learned from Butch and uh, through the years learned a lot from him, not only as a call maker but as a caller. Uh, he was probably one of the best uh, call instructors I've ever been around. He just had a natural of teaching people how to, you know, operate a call. Um, and I just think we have to to take it for what it is and and build on it. And now with CNC machines and um, CNC machines, man, people act like they're evil. They're, it's not an evil thing. You know, it's just the evolution of, of production. Um, but there is something to making calls by hand. And I think if you look at the two, um, making a call by hand is somewhat of an art. And um, I am totally behind pushing that and trying to um, – help people get into the call making business because it's been a very very important part of my life but not just mine the heritage of call making or decoy making you know we're getting to the point now where man i talk about my children all the time like they can't even write <laughs> you know like their handwriting you're like what you yeah, can't yeah. even read it um so that's like a lost art man and i don't want to see call making because it's been i mean i blew in contests for you know 30 35 years i just there's so many of these things that seem like they're kind of going down like contest are like um call making or the history a call making maybe not so much now but like the history there's not as a lot of the call makers don't really even know some of the history i mean there are some mm, but i'm yeah. just saying there's more i think there's more we can do to preserve not just the craft but the heritage and the history that's important because once it's gone man it's it's gone you know um so to me, that's one of and has been one of our big um, deals or initiatives with not just uh, Jay Stevens calls or Rich and Tone, um, but the Flying Duck Tap Room. We're trying to do everything we can do to um, to push that heritage because I don't know how much how many more outdoor sports has the um, the folk heart heritage that that duck hunting has you know and to me that's cool because at one time man you had to make your own stuff and um uh, it's just an art form and it's a it's one of the things that people say is still a true one of the true first american folk art you know it's making um decoys you know and duck calls so that's that's pretty dang cool and and being from uh the duck capital of the world it's something i want to see that's known here for a long time you know and stays here because i when i grew up like i said there was and there was a half dozen to a dozen duck call makers in Stuttgart. Um, so we've kind of started having these little call socials um, once a month to encourage people to come to Rich and Tone and, um, or come to the tap room. And you can display old calls. If you make calls, you can bring calls to sell or trade. But it's just a gathering to try to help educate uh, people about the history or about call making and uh, maybe get them interested into not just collecting in the history, but, you know, if they want to make calls, I mean, it's what better resource than being up here with a bunch of other people that, uh, you know, make calls and that's, um, has a passion to help people. I think that's very important and kind of hijacked your question there, but, um, no, I'm into it. Man. Once I get to talking about it, it's hard to quit. And, and a good example about that is, um, and I told you this earlier, um, about Cloud Jacobs. He, um, he's from Casco and, he started 
First, I think we had like a caller's night where we were helping people um, who hadn't really called in contests or wanted to learn to duck call. We had one night a week and come mm-hmm. up here and we'd help you with your calling. And then we got to these call socials and Cloud started showing up. And now his dad's collected calls and Cloud may have collected calls for a while. Um, but I know his dad's been a big duck hunter and they're being from Stuttgart. They've duck hunted, you know, for a while. But um, when he first came to the first call social, he was just kind of getting interest in, interested into making calls. And um, that's probably been a couple years ago. It's been a real pleasure and a treat to see his interest get peaked and then him try to develop a call and then him kind of honing his skills where he's now has a call that's totally unique, doesn't look like anything else. He's developed his own style and um, super cool, man. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've bought one and I traded one with him and it's cool to have in the collection. But to me, the biggest satisfaction is and I don't want to sound like we're taking credit, but what we were doing pulled somebody in. They got interested in it, which he may have had a little interest before then. And to see them take it from, you know, that interest to honing their skills to actually making a pretty cool duck call. I mean, that's that's I mean, that's the whole initiative. You know, that's the whole purpose of what we're doing. So that's that was really neat to see that. Yeah, no, I mean, I imagine it's incredibly validating. And uh yeah, man, what you're doing here with this space in particular, uh, that's the first thing I said to you when I came into Because I've obviously I've been to the uh, the space before, but I hadn't been in your your actual kind of private call shop here. And it's neat, man. If you guys ever come down here, uh, you come into the space. It's like a big tap room, so there's some really awesome beers. Uh, there's a... Do they make all of them north over there in North Little Rock? Yeah, I, everything we carry pretty much is um, Flyway Brewery in North Little Rock. Yeah. Yeah, and then you've got you've got like your own house brand. You've got right. Uh, we got Flying Duck. Flying Duck, and then uh, so you can buy T-shirts, you can buy all the R and T calls and stuff here. But like probably my favorite part of this is like the the walls are lined. One is a very comfortable environment. It's it was very intentionally built. You know, it's that kind of a combination of you know, some like exposed pipes and really warm woods and uh, just really neat looking. But then the the walls are lined with these uh, display boxes, just like, just like it would be in a museum. And then, so I don't know exactly how often you're cycling them. Are you doing like year-long runs? Yeah, we've, we've that was our plan is to rotate the collection um, yearly, and we do it in February. Okay. Um, so we'll leave it in there till the end of January. And the first year we had um, some duck calls from Illinois, which was Ryan Graves' collection. Second year, I had some of my calls, uh, and they were just Arkansas calls that were in here. And now we have uh, calls of Tennessee from uh, Mark Worthmass collection, and he's from Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. And see, this is – what's really neat about this is, I mean, you, you're seeing – you're able to see calls that, one, a lot of them, you know, I've only seen on the Internet or in books, and th- and they're going to run a range. So, I mean, I've seen calls in here that I actually have in my collection, you know, that were attainable by me. And then there's stuff that's, like, mind-blowing. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, there's calls or decoys. I mean, they could be worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, but being able to get that close to something like that and see it and just kind of absorb it through osmosis is super special. And I think what you've done here is you've kind of built and – facilitated community that's what we talked about when we were in montana talking i was struck by uh like how much you care about stuttgart mm-hmm. you know like as as a place as a community not just as a not just as a place that you can i think a lot of people uh, especially with duck hunting a lot of folks just take from the delta 
you know, they take from the Grand Prairie and they, and not in a malicious way, but you know, they come here, they want to kill ducks. They want to hunt geese. Uh, you know, they're coming for entertainment in a lot of ways. And then they leave and they, you know, being in Arkansas in the Arkansas Delta in the end of November is very different than being here in July. You know, it feels different. <laughs> very it smells different. different. <laughs> the landscape looks different. You know, I think a lot of people only see this part of Arkansas when it's kind of cold and dreary and gray, and they don't see it when it's just all these different shades of green from all the agriculture, or there's just, you know, it starts getting dusk and the mosquitoes are running inside mm -hmm. the house. Uh, but yeah, I'm really taken by it. Uh, and I think you've really built something super special here. Uh, if we could, let's talk a little bit about, and this is something I'm kind of figuring out that I'm attracted to and I'm I'm keying in on when I go to places and I'm dealing with different makers. But uh, your call shop here for Jay Stevens Calls, it's it's obviously been very intentionally put together. You've got, uh, like, the walls are covered in old barn wood. Uh, the countertops are all... Uh, have all, you know, uh, they're big boards that have been like, I'm, I'm assuming pocket screwed together and made, uh, even down to like the carts and stuff you have in here, there's barn wood elements into it. And then you've got all sorts of cool mounts. Uh, you've got cool old kind of vintage vices in here. You've got coon pelts, just everything was, and something you and Raggio both have going is you've got candles going on. Uh, so it it i'm assuming that you've built something to help facilitate you know artistic expression and just a a space that you're really comfortable being and you can kind of give your best to uh if you would just speak a little bit about that and how you kind of design this place well yeah first of all when we designed the shop um we wanted to have where you could do a tour of R&T and see how the calls are being made. And so we've kind of designed that as far as you can walk down the hallways. You can see our calls in there. You can see in the back in our CNC machines. And um, I also wanted a space where I made my calls that had viewing windows where people could see how they're made by hand. You know, so you kind of have best of both worlds if you're touring. And so that led us to, you know, kind of figure out the looks and the color palette. Like if you look... You know, R&T, we still have a rustic look, but it's kind of more of a cleaner look outside. Um, and we keep that consistent throughout the building with the kind of off-white and, and the woods. It's kind of a contemporary rustic, you know, look outside. And mm -hmm. so then when you look at my shop, it looks like an old shop, you know. Um, and that's that's the way I wanted it to look with all the, the wood. And and I, I did use some of my um, architectural skills to figure out, you know, to draw plans of where I wanted everything, um, the cabinets, the uh, like the workspace. Um, and I had a lot of time, obviously, after our fire, because we lost everything we had, to figure out how to do this space in a small space and usable, but still had kind of the, a feel of a, an old artisan's or old craftsman's shop. And uh, at the same time, I did want it to be a space that was, um, you know, a space that you wanted to be in that was, you know, comfortable but also led to those um ideas and you know it kind of puts you in that time frame or that space of making stuff by hand you know when you walk in here you have that feel and I think that lends to to the whole creative process and then of course I've got a lot of little quirky items in here as well but that's I mean that's because that's part of part of my personality with with the older stuff and I think just having that space 
like I said, makes you more productive, more creative um, if you're comfortable in here. But the, the main reason it really is set up the way it is is so that you kind of got two different vibes. Like you've got the R&T vibe and then you got, you know, the handcraft kind of vibe in here. And we kind of got the two melded together at our tap room. Um, and that's another area that where we were came to, to talk about that. We wanted to create an area that people would hang around. And um, we were trying to think when we got ready to build this whole shot we were going to try to build a whole nother floor on top of here and it was going to be a duck call museum that was in the original plans and um this would have been two-story out front i think a little bit wider and it had been open all the way and you'd have been able to walk around the mezzanine and oh wow uh, yeah and uh obviously budget got us on that <laughs> we didn't our our uh eyes were bigger than our pocketbook so we couldn't pull that together so we still had to come back and figure out how how could we still have some type of museum display and educate people. You know, kind of make Rich and Tone, like I said, like a uh, educational center for calls. And that was our whole um, motive when we built the shop or rebuilt the shop. And the tap room kind of came about where we were just like, man, what in the world could we add up here that would keep people here and that everybody likes? And we were like, well, I mean, everybody likes beer or somewhat likes beer, you know. Yeah. So um, then we kind of tied that into the craft part and the crafting of uh, beer and duck calls. And uh, once we met with breweries and got all that lined out, we were really lucky to um, to have a relationship with Flyway. For one, their their name and their, you know, all their marketing and everything yeah. was, I mean, it's waterfowl related or bird related. Um, so that was a really good fit. But once we, and we, we visited all the different breweries and um, had, had beer at each one of them and uh, didn't tell anybody what we were doing. We just kind of traveled around to kind of see what everybody's vibe was. And Flyway was number one on our list. And then when we actually met the guys there, it was just, you know, how when you meet people, it just clicks. I mean, like, we're a lot of the same kind of people. And um, so we partnered with them and told, her, told them our idea about we wanted a beer. We wanted to have a brewery. I'm not a brewery, a tap room. Wanted to work specifically with one brewery. And um, so that just all really happened really smoothly. Um, at that point and then we started thinking how can we incorporate that into um without shoving duck call history down people's throat how can we kind of you know have things in the shop that had to do with that that people would learn so you know our pint glasses have different old duck calls on them a little bit um like dates and where the makers were uh, we've got uh, coasters that have different calls and history on them obviously our um uh, old call or vintage call display uh, you can get a beer, walk around, and see calls that um, are over 100 years old. And um, I think our display holds 182 duck calls. So that's a lot. That's, that's having a beer with a lot of um, things that are older than 100 years. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of a, yeah. it's a pretty neat thing when you sit and think about where all they've been, where all they've been used. And um, and we, we've started here in the last couple of years. Our goal is, too, to, we're starting to get a drake and a hen mounted of every duck in our um, flyway. So when you're sitting you know, sitting at the bar, I mean, people that are here for the first time can kind of get an education of we're going to have like a, like a little map, you know, of what's hanging where numbered. And so they can learn, you know, what ducks, what, and where it's from. And, um, so we're just, we're always trying to think of things that we can add to this to help, like I said, you know, just not only promote the history of calls, but really our sport. Yeah, man, I'll tell you, this is one of the things I thought the first time I came in here, I guess it was probably a couple, cause I was still building black duck and, uh, yeah, I think one day I came down here. It was like it was in the summer. I came down here, and I was the only one here for like two hours, and probably drank about half a pint more than I should have. It happens. And had to had to sit around for a minute. But uh, 
I think a lot of people here in Arkansas, they take for granted how close so much duck hunting history is. You know, if if you lived in Pennsylvania and you watched TV or collected calls or anything, like a lot of that stuff is going to bring you back to Arkansas. You know, I mean, I saw I saw your show a decade ago. You know, I was aware of you and Jim Ronquest and stuff long before I knew you guys. And I mean, obviously, you're not in a situation where people can just come in here and they can grab you whenever they want. But it's it's still accessible. You know, the the folks that are making stuff and contributing uh, heavily to the lineage of this right now are still still accessible. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's something super special. And uh, folks that live in Arkansas have something really special. But also, all the people that are coming here during duck season. And that go by Max and come by here, and you know you've created something that's a destination for people. Uh, man, it's it it really is. It's it's incredibly special. Uh, I'm kind of struck by the fact that it seems to be a hell of a continuation of something that started a little bit with Butch. You know, like Butch wasn't just making calls; he was he was making a concerted effort to instill. Uh, a functional love of the stuff that was important to him to all these kids in his community, you know? And then one of those kids grew up to be a really good duck caller and be incredibly passionate about making calls and understanding the history of it. And now you're, I mean, you're putting tendrils out, you know, exponentially so. Uh, Well, when you think about it too, you know, Chick Majors was the duck call man back you know in the in the 50s and 60s and that's butch did the same thing you know Butch yeah. he learned from chick and went and worked at his shop so really it's it's been passed on and you know hopefully we can just keep doing that and growing it that way because i you know butch took his his deal a little farther than chick you know and it's we can just keep growing it i think that's a that's a good thing man let me ask you a little bit about uh just like your personal aesthetic so, and we talked about this a little bit earlier when I first came in here, but you obviously like, uh, not necessarily antiquated stuff, but you know, you everything in here is, uh, is not neon green. You know what I mean? There's, there's a lot of muted kind of sophomore natural colors. I was really drawn to, you know, even like on like that belt sander over there and you know, the part of it that's got that kind of that, uh, rough cast iron part on it. And, like, something that you have that I covet greatly is that Wagoneer, you know. (laughs) Uh, What, uh, I mean, what do you, just visually, what do you find attractive? What what are you thinking about when you decide something's cool or that, you know, you're coming up with a new call design for a duck call? Man, I think a lot of it just comes from, like, I hate to use the word, nostalgic um, influences, but... You know, that's just because I've been interested in the history. And I told you, you know, my mother was, um, she was, she was fairly young when she had me. And so, um, I listened to the music she listened to, you know, and that, and, or the TV shows and that kind of stuff, you know, growing up. And I just think that there was a lot of things that have, uh, kind of pointed me or, or gave me influences that are from the past, you know, so I don't really know how to describe it, but um, because right now retro and vintage is cool mm-hmm. everywhere, you know. Um, 
So I don't know if that won't be cool with me anymore or not. But I've kind of, I'm not going to say always been against the grain, but I've kind of, I've just been a weird old soul <laughs> since I was a kid. You know, I just, I like that kind of stuff. I'm, I've always been a collector of stuff. So that's another thing is, you know, I've collected old things from whether it was comic books or um, cards or duck calls. You know, I've always been that kind of person. And I think when you're a collector, you just kind of gravitate to things that are older, you know, and I don't know if that's necessarily history driven too, because, you know, I, I mean, the history part of it is just as important to me. You know, I love reading about it and, um, and seeing things, how they were either made or done back then. But, um, I mean, my wife's even a year older than me, so I guess, uh, I just like older things. <laughs> um, but you know, that's, that's it. Like, um, I mean, there's a, 1970 comic book over there hanging on the wall and it's it's because of the artwork you know that's just cool that style um i love the old monster movies you know that and that's way way before my time frankenstein and you know all that kind of stuff um so i don't really know where it comes from that's what i'm guessing is because my mother was such so she was close to my i don't want to say close to my age but she was um she was like 19 or 20 you know when she had me mm -hmm. so um I mean, you know, I'm five or six, she's 25, you know, riding around the car and everything. You just, you know, from TV shows to all that. I mean, there's just yeah, a lot. She was still cool when right, you were a kid. Right, right. Yeah. So I think that's um, that's where a lot of it comes from. And then, of course, you know, just being into old calls and um, I think that's where a lot of it comes from, you know. Um, that's the only thing I can really pinpoint it to. Well, it's working for you, man. I would I would keep riding with it as long as you can get away with it. You no, know, my my dad always said that like he and my brother like new trucks. I liked old ones. <laughs> you know what yeah. what is it about it? I don't know. I always liked old things. You know, or they just I don't know if it's the patina on things, if it's the because it's uh, looks so different, or if it's more because a lot of the stuff was um, not crude. That's not a good way to describe it. But um, I mean, even when you look at the interior of that Wagoneer. You know, it just has that look that's like, man, you mm. wouldn't make that today. And it's it's just cool because it's different. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm attracted to I'm attracted to utility probably first before design a lot of times. And a lot of kind of throwbacks or older stuff, they're very focused on utility, you know. Like if you think about uh, – if you think about like the dashboard of like a – one of those Chevys from the uh, 70s, right? Like everybody's been in one of those, mm -hmm. right? The dials are round. Uh, where like the AC has those slide knobs, you know, the radios have knobs on them and stuff. It's It was incredibly utilitarian. You know, I, I actually find myself in new vehicles. Uh, it's almost a little bit too much for me sometimes. Uh, I was in my buddy's Tesla the other day. and It's cool, but it could never. I could never ride with it. You know, uh, and I think there's something, like I said, I think there's something to utility. I also think that there, and I've kind of always liked old stuff. Like, you know, my first car, I guess I turned 16 and 99. So when you were buying Rich and Tone, I was getting a car. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my first car was a 73 Volkswagen Beetle. Like that car was not cool. To most people in 1999, but man, I was all about it, you know, and I loved the way it smelled inside and I loved that, you know, the way that you got heat in there was it just blowing a fan off the engine so it smelled a little bit like gasoline and uh, 
it's kind of too it's a, it's a way to to stand out i think when i was younger i felt like it was a way to stand out and it's a way to access stuff that uh or access kind of like uh an association with identity that doesn't always require a bunch of money it's you know i bring them up probably too much but like these old those old black calls those old ps olds uh I think what's cool about those is that they weren't expensive to begin with, and they weren't expensive really until very recently, and that just some some guy got them out of a hardware store and figured out how to put a bastard file or a piece of sandpaper on it and make it something that worked for them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, now we're 75 years later and people are paying hundreds of dollars for them because they got cool. But originally what made them cool was that they were almost kind of anti-cool, you know, and and someone could could make it into something with effort. Uh, that might actually be a good segue because I've kind of been wanting to ask you this question. But so you've got you've got this very successful call company with Rich and Tone, and you found the right time in your life to start doing these Jay Stevens calls. And so you have this uh, pretty stark juxtaposition, right? You've got these CNC calls, you've got a lot of polycarbonate calls and stuff made out of acrylic, and then you have with the Jay Stevens calls, you're making stuff out of wood. You know, there's a lot of natural variants in that stuff, even the, the wood that's been stabilized. Uh, and, like, we sat here and watched you make one from start to finish, and it was probably probably approaching two hours. You know, and this is someone who's – you've been making calls for all these decades. Like, you're good. You know what you're doing. And it still took you some time. And, like, when you were making that insert, and I watched you, you went to kind of dry fit it. It wasn't quite right. And so you didn't just thin out – uh, the part that was going to fit inside of the barrel, that led to you having to kind of reshape the rest of the body of that insert to make it all flow together. So that's all a long, long-winded way of saying, why do you think it's, why do you think it's important to make calls this way, to make them by hand, one at a time, out of natural materials, uh, and you know, kind of from the, the creativity and the hands of one person man i think it's important for a couple reasons one because like i said it's such an important part of the waterfowl heritage you know of people being able to make them um and making decoys and it's something that's enjoyable and you know being able to take a piece of wood and make a functional call that'll call a duck you know it's pretty satisfying and there's and honestly you know that's what folk art is is you know making something by hand that's a functional you know tool um or a functional piece of art and i think that carrying on that tradition is important but it's also an expression you know of art to some degree and um that's why i think it's cool to make them by hand and um do them that way because if you have a vision design and being able to carry it out by hand it's it's a certain skill set and a craft, but um, when you look at different calls made by different call makers of the past or different decoys, you're seeing what they saw in their head as far as what their idea for this decoy was. You know, so it's like a capture. It's like capturing a, a piece of their vision at that time, and you have a, you have an artifact that. Um, is also a record of that, you know, and there was a lot of different awesome um, carvers, decoy carvers and duck call makers that 
were very creative and, and made pieces of art. And if they weren't able to express it in that call, you know, it's just, it would be a talent that was lost. And um, I just think it's cool to see how different people have different ideas or different designs. And that's another thing. Design has always it fascinated me, whether it's a new iPad to um, the packaging that the iPads put in to an old duck call from back then. I appreciate design for what it is. Now, I may not typically like some of the newer stuff that's designed, but I have always appreciated design. So I think that's one of the things why I think it's, it's pretty cool to see a duck call being made by hand by different people. Um, it's no different than if you were, I, I use this comparison all the time, if you were a painter or a sculptor, um, you go to a museum and see these paintings and, and see what, you know, was a snapshot in their head of what they thought this should look like, this scene or this sculpture. I mean, duck calls are no different. And it's, um, I don't want to say, <laughs> I don't want to say it's a redneck art form because it's not that, but it's a, it's an art form from our uh, pastime of waterfowling that is a way that, you know, different artists and artisans can express themselves in a sport that we like. And I just think that that's, um, to me, it's just super cool. You know, um, I love seeing, like I was telling you about clouds calls. Um, his, he's got something that man, I, when I look at it, I'd have never in a million years thought to make something that shape. Yeah. Neither so, would I. So it's cool. I, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm overusing the term cool, but, um, bottom line is just another way to, you know, express yourself creatively in an art form that has to do with something that we are all passionate about still cutting. Um, and I think, you know, if we can continue to build on that, use some things from the past, um, traditional wise, but also not be so close minded to uh, look to new things. And, um, you know, I make all my stuff out of, out of wood and not saying that's the right way to do it. I do that because I like the vintage calls. I like, like we said, older things. I like the old, the, the simpler woods that they use. I don't, I have turned some out of, you know, dyed woods and burl woods. It's not my thing for my call style, but then you got somebody like Josh that, you know, that he uses that a lot and it fits his style and what he does very well. So that's, that's just a whole nother personality and um, a style that that's out there. And that's like I was saying, that's why when people make calls, everybody's going to have different calls and that's what makes the, the, the hobby, and the um, pastime fun because you get to see what what vision they had of that call. Um, but I like the traditional woods. I use cord wrap because one, I always thought the cord looked cool on old calls. You know, I was like, man, why have they got string tied around that? And then I learned, you know, they well they're doing it because like a metal band to keep the call together. You know, and even if it splits, it still keeps it together, but it'll help reducing it, and it gives it a cool vintage uh, vibe. So. My calls are all influenced by older call makers. And the other reason why I was doing that, not just because of the design that I like, but I thought that was another way of trying to um, educate people about older call makers. So we're like, if you get one of my calls, it comes with a little, I don't know, it's three or four fold uh, pamphlet that has, uh, that Blake laid out for me. Um, and I, I wrote the copy for it, put some of my drawings, but it has, the different influences for this model. So like if you had got this uh, improved call, it would tell you where the lip rest was influenced from. It'd tell you Charles Grubbs, this barrel here is influenced by it. And it'd give a little history about like, you know, he was one of the first call makers that uh, put a band on a call where he was from. Um, so even if you get one of mine, I, I try to explain where it came and try to introduce new call makers or older call makers to new 
people, I guess is what I'm saying. So um, I don't know. I just, like I said, I'm, a, I'm an old soul. I like old calls. I like, I like making duck calls and um, being able to see what different people can come up with is, is just one thing that's um, satisfying. And maybe that's from my design background and from landscape architecture. Uh, I think, I think if you're a, a designer, you're, you've got it in you somewhere, you know, and you, and you like, you appreciate that kind of stuff. And that's just, that's, that's where I am in my life right now. I, I enjoy, um, lucky man. I, like I said, last three or four years, now you moved back to about 19 or 2000 and was 16 when we had our building burned down. That was not a very fun time. I felt like I was about as low as I'd ever been, but, um, since then, man, we got the shop built back. I've, there's not a day goes by that I don't enjoy or, or love coming to work. And that's, that's, that's worth a lot right there. That's worth a lot. Man. <clears throat> yeah. Truer words, man. Uh, I did want to touch real quick on that collaboration you have with Josh Raggio. It's called Skinny Hippie. And uh, on a previous podcast, we spoke with him about that. Uh, but, man, what do you like about doing that? Because you and Josh both have very distinct styles, and I would not at first glance think that they would kind of meld the way they do. But, you know, you make those couple of calls, they've, they're very uh, fiercely coveted. And, uh, I mean, they're going for, for good amounts, but uh, I suspect that the payday off of them is not the impetus to do them. Mm-hmm. No, I think, um, I think what makes it work is that we are different in our design taste. I mean, I always crack on him for wearing skinny jeans, and that's kind of where we came up with the skinny hippie. He said, I just had old hippie clothes and uh, long hair. and um, We definitely got a different style, uh, but I think what makes it work is we both appreciate, like I said earlier, design and creativity, and, um, you know, we those differences just work together. You know, a lot of times opposites, you know, attract or work or whatever they say, yin and yang. And I'm not saying we're that opposite because we do have things in common, but um, we both appreciate the handmade calls. We both, um, you know, have somewhat of a history um, from, you know, his dad was a, a contest caller and stuff, mm-hmm. so I kind of knew him from that, um, or knew his dad. I really didn't know Josh um, that well until after he started making calls. But the times we've been around each other, um, we just seemed to, to hit it off and work work well together, you know. And when we came in here, that's the other thing that was um, – I, I like joking with him about certain things and picking on him, and he'll he'll give it back. But when it comes time to, to making calls, um, I think the cool thing is we both learn stuff from each other every time, you know. And that's, that's worth a lot, um, too, because – even, um, I mean, I don't feel like I'm old, but I am. If I'm 48, um, he's probably around 40. Um, and that's when you can both learn something from each other, man, that's that's what it's all about. You know, still to this day, learning stuff about uh, making calls. So it's, it's worked good. It's been fun. Uh, like I said, I think we both appreciate the process, too, from concept to building and um, – you know, we we both have the drive to try to make it better each time. And um, at the same time, the pressure builds, too, because, you know, we've, we've done a couple calls and sold them, and they've sold pretty well. And so you start to get to the point where, man, we got to do something really cool this next time, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but that's, 
man, that's what makes it fun. I think that's to get back to it, and um, I know I'm repeating myself, but the collaborations really are for education, I think. Like for me to collaborate with Josh or if I made a call with Cloud or if I made a call with uh, Brad Samples is what 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 can I get out of it that'll better myself and what can I help them get better at? You know, that's the whole thing with collaboration. It's just not to turn a barrel and turn an insert and make some money. I think it's what how you can help each other get better and, and come up with a cool product. Yeah, no, and I I saw that on Instagram a few weeks ago when uh when you had turned to call it and you said that it had been inspired by Cloud's design, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that's got to I would imagine for him that's incredibly validating. Uh, it would be uh, for me. Uh, all right, man. Well, so we'll get to wrapping this up. You know, I've just been thinking about this last question I wanted to ask you because you have really managed to build something incredibly special here. Uh, and like I said before, like I, I don't know of anybody probably in modern times that maybe has contributed to the, the fabric and the tapestry of, of duck hunting, specifically call making and the history of call making and decoys and all that stuff kind of put together in this holistic package. Uh, and I so appreciate it because it's a resource for me, but man, what would you say you're, you're most proud of man that, that's a that's a very broad question uh and well i'm gonna tell you and this doesn't have anything to do with calls but and this is an easy one um uh, man my my kids you know they 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 grew up in stuttgart arkansas and i was always just so worried about that them not getting to do what they wanted to do you know and i didn't want reese to grow up that you have to be a duck call maker. You have to compete in contests. You have to like duck hunting. And um, I think the way that he was brought up and, and you know, how that's evolved for him, um, that he was able to, you know, he loves duck hunting, contest calling. At the time, he did that. And, you know, um, I just think that the way that was handled and, and the way they went through it and, and dealt with it and they appreciate they appreciate our business. They appreciate, you know, duck hunting history, but um, they can also do their own thing. And that's, that, to me, that's that's pretty satisfying because I've got two two different types of children. Both of them are awesome and wonderful. And I have one that's, um, you know, he likes hunting. He's one of my best friends to go hunting and fishing with and um, loves Mississippi State sports. And I can talk to him about this or that. And then my biggest fear growing up in a small town here was I knew my daughter wouldn't like that, you know. And she she had she had different aspirations. She wasn't a hunter, which was fine. Um, I wanted her to appreciate it and do that. And um, she you know was into acting, and um, she was I was always afraid that her raising her here was going to um, kind of pigeonhole her, where she wasn't going to have access to certain things to be able to to do you know and um it 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 hasn't you know she's she's able to uh, pursue what she's doing and um but they still they still appreciate what we have here you know um so i when you say what i'm most proud of i mean that's i i'm proud that we were able to to raise them and then it may backfire on me tomorrow and may both wind up in jail or something now that said that bragged on them but you know to see how they've 
been able to go their own way. But at the same time, we hadn't made them hate what we do. They appreciate it, and they, you know, they've been able to go to go their own their own way. I mean, as far as actually duck hunting and our in our industry or for what we do here, I think the probably the most proud thing that we have done or that makes me the most proud man that's tough when you just think of um i think it's a hard man i'm asking that because someone asked me that and it's a hard question well here's something else man and this has been a tough one i've been lucky enough to hire friends to work and we're still friends you know like everybody up here has been a friend of mine and I'm pretty sure they still are, but um, most of them were friends that I hired, you know, and it's hard to work with friends, but we, we've always been able to kind of separate work and friendship. And so um, that's something else that's, it, it has been trying, but it's, but it's been pretty cool, you know, is that to have the staff that we have um, as far as, man, I mean, you know, when you talk about yourself or stuff, you hate to say anything about accomplishments, but, um, I think really is that my proudest moment as owning Rich and Tone would be um, coming home. I'll try not to even start crying, but uh, when we we left Mexico, man, everything that we had worked for was pretty much gone. You know, I mean, we lost two thirds of our our business. Um, there was a long flight home because, man, we didn't. You know, we saw it on the news or on Facebook in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> just know? real quick so people understand, you were on vacation with your family. Yeah, just my wife. This was our Christmas gift to each other. We were going to go to Mexico after duck season. We always like to try to go somewhere, you know, after mm-hmm. duck season. So, um, man, we were going to go after January, the end of January, 1st February, we went to Mexico. Well, we were there for like one day, and the next morning got up, and um, I was going to put my phone, cell phone in my the little safe they give you. I wasn't going to answer it, and I could just hear it just blowing up, blowing up. And so when I looked at my phone, first thing I said, is the shop really on fire? And I was like, are you kidding me? And so I'm trying to, you know, find out whatever. And um, so it was. <laughs> it was all over the news in Arkansas. And uh, we were able to get back on a plane. But when we got here, um, man, our employees, they uh, they did, you know, they did their best to, to do what they could could do and very proud of them and how they handled it without us being here but the biggest thing was seeing how everybody responded the next day you know and came to work and man we you know you don't know like i mean you got insurance and you got good insurance and um you just until that happens it's a it's 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 devastating because for me i got 18 people here that depend on me keeping this going and so, you know, when it was gone, it was it was tough. But to answer your question, the proudest moment is when I got back and got here and I saw how all of our employees were just – and I hate to even call them employees. That's, I hate when people say, does so-and-so work for you? They work with me. We all work together. And to see how everybody came together and, man, this place looked like a bomb went off. And nobody nobody moped, nobody pouted. First thing we did is we got here the next day and we started, man, started getting heaters because it was cold in here. Some um, little, uh, whatever you call all those, like gas heaters and stuff, you yeah. know. And, and, man, we had the insurance coming and all these adjusters and um, the people that come through and clean everything up. But 
we took out a sheet of paper and we said, all right, we got this many days. We lucky that we had a we had ordered a CNC lathe and a new meal. So they were getting delivered. It would have been February probably. Sometime in March, March or April. So even though all of our other equipment was toast, we had two coming. So we knew we could, and the, and the wait on getting a new CNC machine when we ordered the other one was like three or four months. I mean, like, so we were able to lay out a plan of how we could take our warehouse, make it a makeshift operation, and uh, make it run. And like I said, nobody, nobody sat and felt sorry for themselves. We figured out, all right, we got this little space. How can we cram everything into that space? And so, man, we went and rewired and ran stuff for shipping department. We had Carrie answered the phone in the middle of the warehouse. We had, I mean, those CNC machines, when they came in, we had a place set up for them. But we functioned out of a warehouse. And then we bought portable buildings that were like 10 by 12 buildings. Had them out back. And that was my shop. It was a 10 by 12 building. Ran electricity to each one of them. Um, later that summer, we bought a little bit bigger portable building. Put it out in the parking lot so we'd have a retail space. Um, but to see just how everybody came together and we made it through that and now our sh the way our shop is and the way everything is, you know, I mean, to me, that's that's probably, I mean, that's got to be the proudest moment. I mean, you know, we went from lost everything to we're the best off we've ever been. And and everybody's that the way they handled it. And, you know, it would have been real easy to, like, people quit, go get another job, you know, whatever. Because we went two or three months where, um, I mean, we couldn't work. We worked on the building, but we couldn't produce a duck call, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, that would probably have to be it. And, and we went through three years before. We went 2016 is when it burned. We didn't have our grand open until 2019. So for three years, we worked like that. Um, like I said, I worked out of a 10 by 12 building. And um, there was three other, the other ones that we had for tuning shops and where we finished calls. But it looked like some kind of crazy um, – not to say trailer park's bad, but I mean that's what it looked like. So we had all these buildings, you know, all over the yeah, place, and uh, just a hodgepodge. Yeah, right? it was uh, it was something, but that would definitely have to be it to see how we came from like the lowest point, you know. And and before the fire, I mean, you know, Butch had passed away. There was all these things that had happened that was just like, man, how much lower is this going to go? And then we were able to get through that, and 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 not don't mean this is bragging, but we got one of the nicest call facilities around you know and it's something that we all gave input on like we um no i'm making this question long but we so you know when we sat down to do it i was like guys we don't have to build this thing back just like we have it so let's start listing out you know everything we didn't like about the old one i mean just start spitballing if we could do this if we could do that if money was no object what could we put in there that would you know make rich and home more of an experience and everybody was a part of it and um to see that process like i said from being down to nothing to see how we all worked together and all figured out how we wanted this new place to look. And then, man, the night that we had our, we had an employee party before our grand opening. And, uh, I tried to talk then and I lost it, man. I just, you know, it was, it was just, it was hard to talk in front of them because to see what all we went through and to be standing up there and like, dude, we got a freaking bar. I mean, you yeah, know, that's yeah. pretty cool. We got a bar. We got duck calls. I mean, old duck calls. It was just, it was cool to see that vision come to and to see everybody be a part of it. And, uh, I mean, you can tell my voice is breaking up. So that's, I guess when you ask me, that would have to be the most proud moment. Man, that's a good answer. It's probably a good place to end everything. Uh, 
John, I so appreciate your time today, man. And uh, yeah, maybe in a couple of years, maybe you'll have a maybe you have one of my duck calls sitting over there. I hear you. Uh, maybe not. Maybe they won't be good enough, but we'll see. Uh, well, I mean, it's probably not hard for people to figure out. But if someone did want to get a hold of you or uh, see what you're doing, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, um, of course, my email is johns at rntcalls.com. And then uh, one thing, you know, about uh, some people get the uh, impression that we're we're not accessible. You know, I don't know why, but um, we're in here all the time. So, you know, when you come through us, like I said, we got these viewing windows that you can come in, um, seeing, seeing whether it's I'm making calls or Jim's walking around. Um, you know, there's we're here, and that's what we're here for is to make calls and, and help you with calls. So, um, man, shoot me an email. Um, rntcalls.com uh, if you need anything as far as customer service call Kerry Grissom um, but we're here no duck season we may be a little late but we'll be here <laughs> yeah and uh, if you guys do if anybody does come through <clears throat> excuse me comes through uh, Arkansas during duck season uh, there's probably no better place to come through and have a beer and spend a few dollars because it, it really is it's it's an incredibly special place that you guys have put together here and if you're in the duck hunting or just folk art or craftsmanship or you know you just want to see something really special in in a small place in arkansas you know it's it's all worth coming through here so uh again thank you so much for your time man and uh yeah see you soon okay appreciate it thank you i hope you guys enjoyed that episode of the black duck revival podcast as always this podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, I'd ask that you take a minute and subscribe. Also, a five-star review, and even more importantly, just taking a minute or two to write a review to go along with that hopefully positive review. It helps tremendously with the algorithm, and it helps get this podcast out to more listeners. Also, as always, the title track music is provided by Dr. Bionic of Cincinnati, Ohio. Please take a minute and look them up. They've got some fantastic music out there. They've also got a pretty cool collection of vinyl available for purchase if you're into such things. If you want to keep up with me, see what I'm doing, maybe even come down here and participate at Black Duck Revival, please go to the website. It's blackduckrevival.com or I'm most active on social media on Instagram, and that's simply Black Duck Revival. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.